We are spoiled. Last Sunday morning, uh, we didn't have a traditional uh, Christian service in the sense we were in Jerusalem or we were in Israel, and there was not a good place where we could go to a Messianic uh, Jewish service. So we just had to force ourselves to go to the area of En Gedi, the caves of En Gedi, where David ran from Saul and sit by the brook and, and uh, worship the Lord. It was tough suffering for Jesus, I'm telling you. And you say, Pastor, that's not fair. Only 21 of you went to Israel. Here's my prayer. You need to go at some point. The reason that I took this group back is I went three years ago and it changed forever the way I looked at the Bible. And my prayer is that someday, if the Lord grants you that ability, that time, it will make your faith go from black and white to three-dimensional. It will make it go from black and white and, and two-dimensional to full color. And it will change forever the way you look at Scripture. I'm preaching on Isaiah chapter 40, and, and I've just been where Isaiah was. I've walked and, and been in the area where Isaiah would have grown up and would have known. And we're going to look at Isaiah 40 today, and we're going to talk about that we have a small faith in a great God. But my prayer is that the 21 people who went to Israel will come back and they will impact your life so that you will say, I need that kind of power and passion and love and that, that rejuvenation of, of my faith. And maybe someday the Lord will bring you and allow us to go together. If you have your Bible, turn to Isaiah chapter 40. Small faith, great God. E.B. White, uh, who writes for the New Yorker magazine from time to time, wrote several years ago, and, and we're talking about whatever happened to wonder. Whatever happened to wonder. We were wowed a couple of times over the last couple of weeks. You know, you stand on the Mount of Olives and overlook the uh, Garden of Gethsemane and the Eastern Wall and the walls of Jerusalem. That's a wow moment, just in case you didn't know, okay? When you walk in some of the places where you say, well, Jesus walked here, when you look at Peter's house and you know that that's where Peter would have lived and grew up, and when you see where Andrew and, and some of the other disciples grew up and, and, and you walk along the Sea of Galilee and know that the, some of the same rocks are there, that you're walking on the same rocks that Jesus walked on, it changes forever the way you look at Scripture. We've been wowed, but E.B. White wrote that as a society, as a nation, we've lost our wonder. This is what he said, last night the world shifted. He was living in New York at the time. There was a total eclipse of the moon. And though the weather was such that most people could have gone outside, could have watched from their front lawns, most people tonight opted to watch this total eclipse of the moon from their TV. No big deal, right? Mark Buchanan uh, says it this way, though, and I, and I like what he says. It's strange that technology has done so much to diminish us, to diminish us. It has, of course, done much, staggeringly so, to empower us. But at the same time, the same technology has robbed from us the wow factor. Movies are being made now with the massive help of technology that play on our encroaching fear that this cornucopia of whizzing, whirring, shiny things could be our downfall. The modern catastrophe movie usually has as its center some evil mastermind tweaking a computer, rummaging through someone else's database. It's as though Revelation's bowl of plagues is a software virus, an electronic version of mad cow disease. I love Mark Buchanan. I love his turn of phrase. 
Like Delilah, technology has wooed us in order to kill us. He goes on, we've pinned so much hope on machines. The energy we once poured into prayer, we have shunted over to computers. And in truth, the machines we keep coming up with are increasingly more wonderful. They speak to us and we speak back to them. They work incessantly and, and uncomplaining while we play, eat, sleep. They can save the little girl whose back was broken in a car accident from being a cripple for life. These machines may save a man with a clogged and bloated heart from sure death. The blind see, the lame walk, the hungry have good things to eat. That is technology's blessing. But here's an irony. Machines are so wonderful that they've killed wonder in us. Machines are so wonderful that there's irony after irony. They're such an answer to prayer that they have almost eliminated our sense of the need to pray for help. Here's another irony. They are stunning monuments to the power of our imagination and have come close to obliterating our imaginative powers. Now, I don't know if, if you sense that, but I, I do. If we've lost our, awe, our, our wonder, our awe, that wow factor, if we've lost that, what's the remedy? When we see God through our eyes, we diminish him. Did you get that? When we see God as we see God, when we have God in this little box, we diminish who God is because he is so much more than that. We need to see God through God's eyes. And that's what Isaiah does for us. Isaiah 40, 29. Look at what it says. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Last Thursday, I think it was, but I'm not sure what day it is today. I think it's Sunday. But last Thursday, I think, we were on a bus for about 15 hours, and then we went to the airport, and we got on a plane for about 13 hours, and then we went through customs for a couple of hours, and then we got on another plane for five hours, and then we went and changed planes again and got on another plane for an hour and 45 minutes, and then we got to Sacramento, and we got in a car and drove for about 16 hours, it seemed like, to get that last two and a half hours home. And I told everybody on the trip, whatever you do, stay up as late as you possibly can on Friday because if you don't get re-regulated, then you're really going to have jet lag and you're really going to be hurting on Sunday. And I took, I took my own advice. I stayed all the way up till 6 o'clock. <laughs> he gives strength to the weary. I literally woke up at 2 o'clock this morning thinking, oh, no, I need to get back to sleep. And as I prayed, I just had this wonderful time with the Lord. And he said, no, you don't. Why don't you depend on me today? You've got a nasty cold that you caught along the way, and you've been taking all this medicine, but why don't you just this morning trust me? So I am. Isaiah helps us restore wonder by displaying three glimpses of who God is through God's eyes. And that's what I want to share with you this morning. If you have an outline and there's one in your bulletin, you can follow along. Uh, three questions, really. Am I in awe of God's propensity for change? Am I in awe of God's propensity? He has such a desire. He has such a natural inclination for change. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 1 says, Comfort, comfort my people. Says your God. 
Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. He's writing to these people in chapter 39. He has said, Babylon's going to come and they're going to overwhelm you. And then all of a sudden in chapter 40, he totally changes his tone and he's so comforting to the people and he assumes it's already happened. Because of that, many people believe that Isaiah 40 through 66 may have been written by a different person. Only one slight problem with that. I've seen the Isaiah scroll and the Dead Sea scroll. I've seen that in Jerusalem and I've seen the, uh, the representation of what they found. And guess what? In the original scrolls, they didn't have chapters and verses, but chapter 39 and chapter 40 are butted up together. They're, in fact, they're just a, a paragraph that continues without any change whatsoever. Isaiah wrote this in the future as a prophecy saying, listen, when you get to that point and you've been overrun by Babylon, in 586 when Jerusalem falls, I want you to be comforted because God says, it's okay. Look at verse 3, a voice of one calling in the desert. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up and every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level. The rough, rugged places a plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all mankind together will see it. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry out. And I said, what shall I cry? All men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, and the flowers fall, because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, and the flowers fall. But the word of our God stands forever. You who bring good tidings to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good tidings to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up. Do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power and his arm rules for him. See, his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. And he gently leads those that have young. This is, this is such an incredible prophecy. I could literally spend the next six weeks on that, but I won't. I'll just spend six hours. This is what we're going to look at. No, I'm just going to answer this question. Am I in awe? Because here, Isaiah reveals two things about who God is through God's eyes. God uses the least to achieve the most. He says to them, Listen, you're not much. You're this little tiny nation, and if you look at a map and you see how little Israel is compared to all of the people around them, and you see how many people are in Israel today compared to all of those who want to kill them, and you realize that God has done something special with this people for century after century after century, God says, you're not much. You're the least, but I can achieve the most. Jesus quoted Isaiah 53 and Isaiah 6 at one time in John 12, 37 through 41. We know that Isaiah was all written by the same person. I, I referenced that earlier when I said some people believed at some point that Isaiah must have been written by two different authors because it changes so dramatically. And the Lord says, no, it's not true. Jesus referenced both Isaiah 53 and Isaiah 6 at the same time. But what he wanted Israel to realize is that God was not done with them. 
I'm going to say something that's unpopular with a lot of people today, and it's not a political statement. It's a theological statement, okay? Listen to this and listen to it very well. God is not done with Israel yet today. God is going to send a revival to Israel someday. One and a half percent of the population of Israel are believers today. But but one day, that 144,000, I love all the popular books about what's going to happen during the tribulation, but the 144,000 evangelists are all going to be Jewish, 12,000 from every Jewish tribe. They're going to come back, and they're going to come to Israel because God says, I'm not done with you. I still have a plan for you. Because God's love is an everlasting love. It bridges two or 3,000 years like it's nothing. And any time that you might doubt whether God still loves you, you can look at Israel and says, if God, and you can say, if God still loves Israel, he still loves me. 1 Corinthians 1.27 gives us the same thing. It says, God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. You know who the foolish and the weak are? Raise your hand. Raise your right hand. Everybody raise your right hand. Right now. Come on, raise it up. You're the foolish and the weak. That's us. Sign me up. I'm the foolish and I'm the weak. And God says, I've chosen the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. When we go out of here, when we go into the workplace and we begin to proclaim that we believe that Jesus Christ was Son of God, Son of Man that he was fully God, that he was fully man. When we begin to proclaim that we believe that Jesus rose from the dead, when we begin to tell people that we believe that God created this, this whole universe, people will look at us and say, isn't that nice? And they want to pat you on the head. And they think, those stupid Christians. And God says, don't you understand? I am the one who's done it all. One of the greatest ironies is that he uses the thing we are least likely to suspect to grow us the most. Did you notice what it says? He says that your hard service has been completed, that your sin has been paid for. Israel was in pain. At the time Isaiah 40 was written for, it was 586, Jerusalem has fallen. They've been overrun. They've been taken captive. And Daniel and others who were taken in different captivities are going to be deported from Israel. They're going to be taken to another nation. Some of them will never be returned to Israel. They're in agony. They've been overrun. They've ceased to exist as a nation as we know it. And they think it's all over. And God says, I can do the most sometimes with the worst. John Ortberg is another of my favorite authors. He wrote an article called Don't Waste a Crisis. This is what he says. I was once part of a survey on spiritual formation, on spiritual growth. Thousands of people were asked when they grew most spiritually and what contributed most to their growth. The response was humbling, at least for someone who works at a church. This is what it says, this survey. The number one contributor to spiritual growth was not transformational teaching. I need to write that, mark that out. I like, I, you know, we, we don't want to do that. It should be transformational teaching. Oh, it was not transformational teaching. It was not being in a small group. It was not going to Sunday school. It was not reading deep books. It was not energetic worship experiences. It was not finding meaningful ways to serve. The most enlightening, the biggest contributor to spiritual growth was not a pastor. I'm not liking this guy anymore. He's making me mad. The number one contributor to spiritual growth was suffering. 
This is what John says. People said they grew more during seasons of loss, pain, and crisis than they did at any other time. I immediately realized that as a church, we had not even put any, anybody in charge of pain distribution. Some of you are not getting that. Okay, think about it. So now we are figuring out how to, to create more pain per attender for maximum spiritual growth. I can just see that, pastor of pain. I, I think that's great. Actually, the wonderful and terrible thing about crisis is that it's the one resource we do not have to fund or staff or program in the church. It just comes. However, pain does not automatically produce spiritual growth. Ghettos and barrios and abusive homes and trauma wards may produce scarred souls. They can cripple more human spirits than they can strengthen. Crisis can lead to soul strength, but not if the soul is starved of, the, of other nutrients and not apart from God beginning to work in the hearts and the lives of those in pain. No one wants pain. Not even long-time mature Christians want pain. We always want to find ways to avoid pain. Pain itself is a bad thing. This is what John writes. It's a little-known fact that in Chinese, the word crisis is made up of two characters, life and stinks. Okay, that's really not true. But the place to begin in crisis is with simple humanity, with love. The Lord said to love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, but also to love others as we love ourselves. So when someone is in crisis, don't start by teaching, leveraging, explaining, just start by loving. Perhaps the single most disobeyed command the Apostle Paul ever wrote was mourn with those who mourn. He doesn't say give good advice to those who mourn. He doesn't say tell mourners to suck it up because plenty of people have it worse. He doesn't say rebuke mourners because being around someone who's unhappy gets in the way of my own unbridled demand for incessant pleasantness. I like John. No, he says mourn with those who mourn. God can take the worst thing in your life and make it the best thing in your life. And we tried to avoid it, and God says, I can use it to teach you. God uses the least to achieve the most. God, number two, God uses the unlikely to display his glory. Of all the nation in this world, why didn't he choose China? Look at how many people are there. Why didn't he choose Japan? Why didn't he choose, I mean, we think of America as the most blessed nation. But God chose Israel. God chose Abraham and said, come out of Ur of the Chaldees and go to this little place on this, the end of the Mediterranean, and it's kind of obscure and it's small, but I'm going to use you in a, in a great way. God uses the unlikely to display his glory. God chooses grass that withers, flowers that fade. God chooses us to display his glory. Did you get that? You know, he says uh, several times, he says, the grass withers, the flowers fall. And we all men are like grass. God wants to show his glory in you. God wants you to be the picture of his glory on a day-to-day -day basis for the people in your neighborhood, at your work, at your school, those people that you love the most. They need to see God's glory, not in some preacher, not in some great megachurch. They need to see it in us, in you. To see it fleshed out. On our own, we're insignificant, but when God is within us, we're incredible. Now look at what Romans 8, 17 says. 
Now, if we are children, then we are heirs. That means we're going to inherit from God. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may, present tense, also share what? In his what? What does it say? In order that we may also share in his? Man. You can share today in the glory of God. What does that mean? John Piper says that God's glory is the fiery radiance of his nature. I mean, we know the stories of Elijah. Elijah was taken up in this chariot of fire. That's a fiery radiance of God's character, of his nature, of who he is. Elijah had the only chariot that was glory-fueled. And it says that day then, when the shepherds were out there and just outside of Bethlehem, the shepherds were out there in that field and they, they were tending their flock and it says the, the, the angels appeared to them and it says the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terrified. One day it says in Revelation that we won't need a sun or a moon because the glory of God will be so radiant that there will be no more night and day as we know it. 2 Corinthians 4, 6, and 7 said, God made his light to shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. God says, are you in awe of my propensity for change? Here's a second question. Am I in awe of God's power to change me? Look at Isaiah chapter 40, verses 12 through 16. Am I in awe of God's power? Not just a, a, a desire to change us, but the, the ability to change us. Look at verse 12. It says, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, or with the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens? Who's held the dust of the earth in a basket, or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in a balance? Who has understood the mind of the Lord or instructed him as his counselor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him and who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? Surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket. You're worried about our nation? We're like a drop in a bucket to God. It's no big deal. They're regarded as dust on the scales. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. Lebanon is not sufficient for altar fires. In fact, all the cedars of Lebanon are not enough to, to, to worship the Lord, nor its animals enough for burnt offerings. Before him, all the nations are as nothing. They are, com they are regarded by him as worthless and less than nothing. To whom then will you compare God? What image will you compare him to? As for an idol, a craftsman craft casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and fashions silver chains for it. A man too poor to present such an offering selects wood that will not rot. He looks for a skilled craftsman to set up an idol that will not topple. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was, was founded? He sit, sits enthroned above the circle of the earth. And its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. He brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground than he blows on them and they wither. And a whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. To whom will you compare me? 
Or who is my equal, says the Holy One. Lift your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls them each by name because of his great power and mighty strength. Not one of them is missing. Do you sense the power of God in that passage? Isaiah says, don't you get it? God is all-powerful. How immense is God? Really, if you, if you want to see God from God's eyes, how immense is He? How huge is God? How can we describe God? J.I. Packer wrote one of the best books on God that I've ever seen. It's, called, it's a little book called Knowing God. And in the foreword of that, he said this. And J.I. Packer is a tremendous, uh, tremendous scholar who knows the Lord who spent all of his life studying God. And this is what he says, as clowns yearn to play Hamlet, just like some clown, some circus clown, would love to get in the theater and play one of the toughest parts that Shakespeare ever wrote. As clowns yearn to play Hamlet, so I have wanted to write a book about God. He knows more about God in his lifetime than any other man that I believe has ever lived. And he says, I'm like this stupid clown trying to take on this part that I cannot do when I begin to try to fathom and be, try to begin to explain who God is. John Piper, once again, says this, in the church, our view of God is so small instead of huge, so marginal instead of crucial, so vague instead of clear, so impotent, powerless, instead of all-determining, and so uninspiring instead of ravishing that the responsibility to live to the glory of God is a thought without content. You may think about it, but you can't. There is nothing to back it up. The words can come out of our mouths, but to ask the average Christian to tell what they know about the glory of this God that they're going to live for, and the answer should, will usually only take a few seconds because they don't know about God's glory. How immense is God? Did you notice the words here? He says the nations are like a drop in the bucket. Did, did you notice it says that he, he measures all of the water? We flew over the Atlantic. We didn't fly over the Pacific. We flew over the Atlantic, and that's a lot of water. I mean, you look down, and there's not much land between here. When you leave Philadelphia and go into Tel Aviv, there's not a whole lot of land. And I tried to picture God's hand scooping out all of the Atlantic Ocean in his hand. He says he measures off the universe with a span of his hand. Somebody told me it wasn't very warm here. I did a little research. The surface of the sun, if you want to go there and be warm, the surface of the sun is 10,000 degrees Fahrenheit. 10,000 degrees Fahrenheit is the surface of the sun. Of course, if you really want to warm up, you can go to the core. It's 27 million degrees Fahrenheit. We can't fathom that, can we? What's the diameter of the earth? Anybody know? The diameter of the earth? What is it? About 7,000 miles. The circumference is 25,000. The diameter is about 7,000 miles, 7,000, 8,000 miles. The diameter of the sun is 874,000 miles. You could fit one million Earths inside the sun and have enough room for 10,000 of all the rest of the planets. Hello. How big is our God? How immense is our God? Job 38.4, look at what, when Job asked God all these questions and God comes back and talks to him and says, where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? 
I was the one who put that sun into orbit. I'm the one who lit the fire in the sun. I'm the one who keeps it just the right temperature. If the sun was just a few degrees hotter, we would burn up. If it was a few degrees cooler, we would freeze to death. And God says, I've got it under control. Where were you when I laid the foundation? In 1 Kings 8, 27, Solomon is dedicating the temple. And in his address to Israel, it's really an address to God. It's a prayer to God. He says, the heaven cannot contain you, much less this temple. You know, sometimes we focus on, oh, I want this kind of worship in the church. You know what? We need to focus on the great God we worship, not the great worship that we have. Focus on who God is. How immense is God? The second question that really bubbled up from this passage when I read it is, how wise is God? How wise is God? All of a sudden, he's talking about God, and he throws in this business about idols in verses 19 and 20. He says, they make these idols of gold, and they have silver chains, and they don't have enough money for gold and silver. What they do, they go get wood that doesn't rot, and they carve this idol, and they worship it, and all they're trying to do is find an idol that won't fall over, that won't rot. And Isaiah doesn't even comment. And by absence, the argument is, are you kidding me? Would you really worship something that has no ability, that has no wisdom? God knows perfectly, completely. He sees every angle. He's everything in between. He's the source of all wisdom. Daniel is a part of the deportation. Daniel is going to be one of the great prophets of God. And Daniel is living about this time. And Daniel has this revelation of God. Look at what Daniel chapter 2 says. Daniel 2.21 says he changes times and seasons. He sets up kings and deposes them. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. We're in the Dead Sea. We're floating around in this water. By the way, that's just cool. You, everybody floats in the Dead Sea. I don't float in any other water, but in the Dead Sea, I can't not float. And then an Israeli soldier's there with his older brother, and they're talking about politics, and they're talking about... Just in case you didn't want, you, you, you might not have known for sure, Israel doesn't like our current president that much. They asked what I did for a living. I told them I was a pastor, and they didn't know what that was. And then I introduced Kathy. He said, is it like a priest? And I said, well, kind of. And then I introduced Kathy as my wife, and he turns to her and he says, are you a nun? <laughs> you try to explain that one to him, Okay. And I said, no, she's, she's the love of my life. And, she, you know, and I told about some of the things that she did in the church. But he says, well, what kind of a church is it? And I finally, you know, I tried to describe Cross Point. And I said, we're an independent Baptist church. That's our, our background. He says, oh, Baptist. Are you like Mike Huckabee? <laughs> he said, we want Huckabee as the next president. <laughs> you know what I said to him? I said, I serve a God that sets up kings and deposes them. I serve a God who has all power. The most powerful man on the face of this earth today is not Barack Obama, and it wasn't George W. Bush or anybody else that's ever been president of our nation. The most powerful man that ever has lived on the face of this earth was Jesus Christ, Son of God, Son of Man. And he's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And one day, Jesus Christ will come back as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And all of this nonsense that we have in politics, it will be gone. That's who I serve. And he has all wisdom and all knowledge. Sometimes that's kind of daunting, intimidating. 
Have you ever played a game with someone who knew so much about the game that you felt like an ignoramus? There have been a couple times that that's happened to me. One time I was trying to learn to, to play tennis. My brother Jim was a pretty good tennis player, so I didn't want to play against Jim because he just drilled me, and it wasn't fun. You know, he would just hit ace after ace. And my sister-in-law, who had gained a little weight and was kind of out of shape, she said, I'll teach you to play tennis. And I thought, good. She's old. I mean, she was really old. She was like 30. <laughs> she was ancient. And she was kind of heavy, and she didn't move real fast. And I was playing tennis with her. And she was serving to me, and I was lobbing them back, and I was thinking, I'm feeling pretty good about this. And so I was hitting them back a little harder, and I finally kind of got the rhythm and the forehand, the backhand. I was, I was feeling pretty good about this. And then all of a sudden, she said, you ready to play? And I'm thinking, I was. I mean, I'm sweating, and I realized she hasn't moved anywhere. This is not a good sign. She could place that ball anywhere she wanted to. And I could run and do anything I could to just try to get it back. And she didn't have to move because she placed the ball so that if I could get it back, it always came back to her. It was really close. Love means, if your score is love means zero, I had a lot of love that day. (laughs) The Lord says, I want to play a game with you, but it's not a game, it's called life. And I know all the answers if you'll just come to me. Francis Schaeffer once said to turn to his wife Edith and he said, what if the power and the wisdom of God were withdrawn from all the churches today? What difference would it make? And she began to cry. And she said, oh, to her husband, she, she said, oh, my gracious, I'm afraid not much. How immense is God? How wise is God? And here's the last two, or the last question. Am I in awe of God's provision for me? Am I in awe of God's provision? You know, you start this out, and it's talking about comfort, comfort ye my people, and a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord. By the way, in John chapter 1, verse 23, John the Baptist says, I'm the fulfillment of that prophecy. I'm the one calling out in the wilderness. We saw where John the Baptist was born. We saw the, the Judean hillside with all of the rocks. And he says all the valleys will be raised up and the, and the mountains will be crushed down. And it will be this wide, flat path for the King of kings and the Lord of lords. That sounds impossible, doesn't it? Well, listen to this last part. It's just as impossible. Isaiah chapter uh, 40, verse 27. Am I in God, awe of God's provision for me? Why do you say, O Jacob... And complain, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord. My cause is disregarded by my God. In other words, God, you've abandoned me. You don't know what's happening in my life. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary. And his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. Literally, the Hebrew says there, and you could change this word out, those who hope in the Lord will exchange their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. We walked all over Israel. We had people that were exhausted. 
Am I in awe of God's provision for me? Because he says when you're weary, he's going to give you the power. Number one, switch your loyalty to Christ. They were complainers in Israel. You've, you've abandoned me. You're not listening. We're going into captivity, or we are in captivity by the time this happens. Where is God? What's he done for me lately? And what was Isaiah's response? Don't you get it? Do you not know? Have you not heard? God is the eternal, creative, tireless genius who's on our side. That's my rendition of that. Don't you know, haven't you heard? God is the one who has a solution. Switch your loyalty. Our loss of wonder is of who we are in Christ distorts our view of everything. When we lose that wonder of who God is, then we begin to think of ourselves as God and we begin to treat ourselves as God. 1 Kings 18, 21. Elijah asked the question, Elijah went before the people and said, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. We went to Mount Carmel. We saw the place. There's no doubt about where Elijah said those words. And there were, there were all these prophets, 450 false prophets that day. There were upwards of 900 prophets of false prophets that were, that were just all over Israel. And Elijah had gotten to the point where he'd been running for three years for his life. And he finally has this confrontation. And he comes to the people and says, why don't you make a choice? Who are you going to trust in this life? Are you going to trust these other things in your life? What have they done for you? And you say, well, I don't have any bails. No, you have credit cards. You have people that you depend on. You have this system. You have retirement. You have all these other things. Folks, I hope I'm wrong. I hope that our nation comes through this time and everything gets righted and your retirement funds and everything else that you thought were going to be there, they get restored. I hope that your health lasts so that you, you, know, you get to 98 and you have a heart attack and die one day and go into the presence of God. But the truth is, I'm part of the baby boomers that's looking at some pretty tough statistics about where our parents are going to be and where we're going to be in a few years. They're not going to need more daycare. They're going to need more adult care facilities for people who have Alzheimer's and, and other issues in their life. It's looking pretty tough for us. If you're looking at your own strength, you, you have every reason to be a little disturbed. Elijah didn't have the gift of mercy. He says, would you choose today who you want to trust? You ever feel weary? Switch your loyalty. You ever feel like you don't have the answer? Switch your loyalty. You ever feel like life has given you a bad rap? Then switch your loyalty. We'll never in our own, in our own strength soar like an eagle. We think what we need is to turn over a new leaf. We think what we need is a little more strength. People were worried about me. I had knee surgery before I went on this trip to Israel. People have asked me if my knee hurt. I've got a big bruise on the right side of my knee. Uh, my right knee is banged up, and it's been hurting since about the second day. My right knee has really hurt. Here's the interesting thing. I had the surgery on the left knee. My right knee was having a hard time keeping up with my left knee. 
But no matter how good a job that surgeon did on my knee, that's not what I needed because I don't care how good a surgeon you have, they're never going to make you soar like wing, uh, on wings like an eagle. We think that we need a, a, just a, a makeover or a surgery or a little nip or a tuck or something to make us better. And what the Lord says is, I don't want to make you better. I want to make you brand new. C.S. Lewis at one point says, it's like that we see this racehorse and we say, God, would you make me fast like this racehorse? And he says, no, I'm going to give you wings like Pegasus so you fly to new areas that you've never seen before. That's what it means to switch your loyalty. He's not talking about tweaking you. He's talking about transforming you. That's what God wants to do for us. Those who hope, those who wait, those who trust in the Lord will soar on wings like eagles. And here's the second one. It, once you've switched your loyalty, ask God to make you a champion for him. Ask God to make you a champion for him. Gary Smith in his commentary on Isaiah says, tap into God's strength. Replace, exchange, renew. Those who wait on the Lord will exchange, will replace, will renew their strength. What happens when we live in God's strength and not our own? It happened in the early church, didn't it? Do you remember what happened in the early church when the day of Pentecost came and the Holy came and, and the Holy Spirit when, it, when the Holy Spirit came upon them? What happened in the early church? Acts four. This is what it says. Acts four thirty one. It's right there. After they prayed, after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. The same ones who denied Christ, the same ones who said, you know, this is ridiculous. We don't, have, you know, we don't have anything to do with him. Peter stood there and said, I don't know the man. I'm not from Galilee. There, there's nothing that I can, can, can tell you about here. The same one is the one who stood up on the day of Pentecost and he led 3,000 people to Jesus Christ. In Acts 17, 6, it says, those who were against the believers said they were turning the whole world upside down. Did you get that? In Acts 17, the people who hated the Christians said, you got to shut these people up because they're turning the world upside down. When's the last time we turned the world upside down for Jesus Christ? The worst consequence of losing our wonder is that Christianity is no longer an adventure. It's a duty. It's a chore. It's a list of do's and don'ts. It's a list of how to do something. Is our life about being safe and undisturbed? J.D. Watts says, think again of that eagle soaring. It's an apt figure. The eagle soaring, the soaring eagle is borne aloft not by his powerful wings, but he's borne aloft by the wind's current, lifting his rigid pinions. It's the Holy Spirit coming underneath the wings and making that eagle soar. Even the eagle doesn't soar in his own power. The eagle needs the wind. Is your life in Christ an adventure, or is it a how-to manual? I got to thinking about that. So I brought a couple of movies, okay? One of them are DVDs or whatever. One of them is TurboTax for 2010. It's a how-to to file your taxes for state, federal, and it says, which TurboTax is right for you? Step-by-step -step guidance. Do this. Answer this question. Punch this button. And at the end of the time, it spews out and says, you owe this much or you get this much back. This is what a lot of people think the Christian life is all about. It's a how-to manual. It's do's and don'ts. It's this and that. 
I think the Christian life is more like this one that I brought. It's called The Born Identity. Some of you know that movie, don't you? Good for you. It's a, it's a series of books that was written. Matt Damon was in the movie, and, and this guy all of a sudden wakes up one time, and he's floating in the middle of the ocean, and they drag him out of the ocean, and there's a bullet in his back, and he has these skills that he doesn't know where he got them. He doesn't know what he's been trained to do, but there are things in his mind that he never realized were there before, and he doesn't know his true identity, and he's trying to find out who he is. And by the end of the movie, I mean, it's kind of unrealistic. I mean, he, this guy takes on 20, 30, 40 guys at a time, but he has unbelievable skills and unbelievable things that he didn't, I mean, it's virtually supernatural. And he's just trying to find out who he is. And the Lord says, if you'll come to me one day, I will give you a new identity. In Revelation, it says, I've got a name that's written on a white rock that I'll give you. It's a whole new name. It's a whole new identity. It's a whole new life. And you will have abilities, and you'll have skills, and you'll have a new mindset, and you'll have a new heart, and you'll have this whole new, this whole new reality, and it's a reality in me. And God says, would you like to go on an adventure with me? And we say, can I have another copy of TurboTax? The only thing wrong with this whole jacket is that this guy doesn't have any marks on his face and there's no blood running down his face and there are no injuries on him. And the truth is, sometimes it looks like we've been through, a, been through a war. But the Lord says, don't worry. Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. And one day you'll wake up and you'll have this new identity and you'll see God as he sees himself. And you'll say, I want to go on a, this adventure with you. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? You may have come here today and you think, well, I'm, you know, I'm here, but what do you want to say? I want to ask you the question one more time. Where's your loyalty? Who do you trust? Are you still trusting in your own strength? You will grow weary. I don't care how hard you've run for how long. You will grow weary. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. God says, come to me in grace and I'll give you a new life. Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay for that new life. And the offer is yours today. After I pray, we're going to allow you a, a time. You can come and sit on one of the chairs in the front, and we will pray with you, and we'll introduce you into the greatest adventure life has ever offered. Father, we need you. Father, forgive me. Sometimes my faith is so two-dimensional, so black and white. I don't want to live like that. I want to know what you placed in my mind and in my heart. I want to know what adventure you planned for me from the beginning. I want to come into your presence and live in your presence in such a way that every day is an adventure, every day is another opportunity to take a step for you, to live in you, to trust you, to love you, to grow in you. Father, I need you. So as you're fleshing all of this out for me, May you flesh it out for anyone here who needs to know you for the first time. 
Or maybe Father has gotten so used to running in their own strength that they can't even think what it means to soar on wings like an eagle. Forgive us, Father. Empower us, Father. Thank you for the provision of the cross, for the provision of the power that you've allowed us to have in Jesus Christ and in your Holy Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.